Hello, Story Seekers. I'm Nico. I'm Ben. And you're listening to our favourite part of the week. Stories, discussions, and a high likelihood of gratuitous obscenities, all in the service of a bibliomancer. This is the Tiny Bookcase. Regular listeners will know how it works, but for newcomers, Nico and I have both written a story to the same shared prompt. We're about to share those stories with each other and you for the first time. Then we'll workshop them on mic. For the second episode in a row, the prompt is guidelines. It's the first time we've ever done two episodes in a row with the same prompt, isn't it? Yeah, doubled up. Doubled up. And of course, it's not a new story. It's the second part of the stories that we started last week. In the it's previous fine, episode. Ben. As everyone knows, sequels are always better than the first <laughs> one. Provably always better. <laughs> Provably, eh? Oh, oh, yeah. Terminator 2 is pretty fucking good. Yeah, Empire Strikes Back, also oh. great. Jaws 2, obviously a massive part of this. Well, that sound that you can hear is us digging our own graves as we compare <laughs> stories that we have not yet read out to each other to works of greatness. I mean, Jaws 2 is not a works of greatness. <laughs> Jaws 2 is not a works of greatness. <laughs> Listen. <laughs> Oh, dear. so last last week I was knackered with COVID, and this week you're in the middle of a tour, so you're. Yeah, yeah I am. <laughs> it's, it's all go for us. I'm, I'm out there making my own works of greatness. Oh dear. I, I think I'd take the tour over COVID again, though, because that fucking. Oh sucks. yeah, I I would not wish it on you or anyone again. Same sore throat though. Yeah. <laughs> I'm. Uh... It's it's holding together so far. We'll see. Yeah. We'll see how the rest of the tour goes. How did you find coming into the second part of this? After because obviously we did we did feedback and we workshopped the stories in the previous episode. So how did yeah. you find the changes? And did you listen to me or did you did you carry on? I did. Did I listen I, to yeah. you? I did. It it was interesting because. It's it's normally a very solitary experience before we read. Yeah, yeah. In the podcast, you know, we I know we both read to our partners to say, you know, this isn't dog shit, is it? And we read it out to someone. <laughs> Some but... kind of pathetic attempt at validation before we go on. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> but like our our relationship in terms of the stories in the podcast mean that we don't touch each other's work at all until after it's too late. Too late, yeah. So it was really interesting to to sit down and, uh, and I mean, we'll get to this a bit more later, but I actually went back and changed things in the story that I'd already written. So that's never one. happened Wild. in the podcast. Yeah. But because of your notes, I was like, no, I need to fix that before I can write the next part because it needs to actually, if this story is going to change direction like this, the beginning won't make sense anymore. That's really diligent. Um, I, I did not do that. I, I probably should have done that. <laughs> I just wrote the second part, but I think that's I think that's really good that you that you did that, or, or at least that you felt compelled to do that. I mean, because I remember my, my notes weren't particularly extensive last week. I think it was, for the most part, it was just solid stuff, I seem to recall. There was a lot of stuff about the character Knight, and I was like, yeah, I need to go back and fix him so that he's actually cool in the next bit. <laughs> <laughs> Your notes were very good as well. I... Um, 
I found that they gave me like a real uh, sense of purpose in the story, like the direction that I was going. Um, oh, and I also I, I also did something a bit a bit fucky, which I'll go into after I've after I've performed it. Um, oh, a wonderful phrase. Yeah, I know, I know. But yeah, it's been an interesting experiment, and we'll see if uh, see if people like it. Um, I also think yeah. that we'll be releasing both of them together as a bonus episode. So people, if they want to, they can listen to part one and two back to back. Yes, you can go and hear it, you know, uh, as God intended. <laughs> as the Bibliomancer <laughs> intended. Yes. But yeah, I think uh, there's not much else we can do to, to put it off then. Into the ringer we go. And you'll be concluding your story first. Bon voyage. Guidelines, part two. The end? What does it matter if it's the end? These are people that could live forever, but they choose to come to this place and undo what was done to them. They don't even think of you as human. To them, you're something else, lesser. The captain opened the lid on the pump, dipped her handkerchief in it and mopped at her brow and neck. They were near to the engine, parts of which grew so hot the metal would steal skin from incautious hands. Hicks came close enough so that if he'd wanted to, even whilst bound, he could have reached out and crushed her throat. I should have cut you in earlier. Then this could have all been avoided. There's still time, though, Howie. I'd hate to lose you. Don't think I haven't noticed how much you do around here. Cover the bribe for myself and the crew. And you can save the kid. We'll call it a clerical mix-up. You want to get paid twice to not kill a kid? Howie cut in, but the captain continued as though he'd not said a word. It was 10k all in. Have you got that kind of bank? In my pension. Have we got an accord? She flicked her belt knife open and held it loosely by her side. The threat was clear. She may as well have shoved the carrot up his ass whilst getting him to bite down on the stick. Yeah, we've an accord. At his words, she leant forwards and cut the ropes which held him to the rail. Make yourself presentable for the ceremony. Howie found himself walking back towards the crew quarters he had been burgled from. He passed some of the men that had woken him with rope and gag on his journey. Most of them had the decency to meet his sullen gaze. Howie quickly shaved, washed up with a small bowl of juddering water, and put on his dress uniform, affixing the last button just as Rusty's whistle sounded from the pilot house. Howie felt the Elysium begin to slow her progress in response, and knew he was already late. By the time he made it up onto the dining balcony, the Everfolk were already at the railing. Beyond them, Howie could see the night-drenched banks of the river were festooned with drooping branches, from which hung pendulous, iridescent blue flowers. His crewmates, better suited to balancing on the steamship than their ever-folk masters, were leaning out with boat hooks to snag branches and bring them within easy reach of their rich guests as the Elysium progressed at a dawdling pace. Each of the ever-folk plucked their own plump little bouquet with delicate ceremony, and one by one brought them to where the captain was waiting, next to a large and ornate copper bowl. How he could smell the hard alcohol base as he stood next to Hicks. 
The medicinal and sterile smells from the bowl warred in his nostrils against the fragrance of the blue jungle blooms the Everfolk dropped in it. For each flower deposited, the captain stirred it once. How he had seen it many times, but had never cared much to watch the flowers disintegrate and imbue the liquid with its powerful essence before. Might I be excused, Captain? Howie spoke gruffly, desperate to be away from the place. Do we have a problem? hissed Hicks. No, Captain. I just need to check that any debris this close to the bank doesn't snag up the paddle wheel. Hicks nodded, barely containing her frown. Howie undid the top button of his collar as he descended towards the boiler room, and ducking past the massive piston arms that powered the Elysium, leant over the rail next to the big wheel as it pushed effortlessly through the water. Are you well? The little voice startled him. How he turned to see where it had come from. Peering into the shadow, he realised an oil lamp had been extinguished. The Everfolk child stepped out of the darkness, and how he saw the sparkling galaxies of possibility in the boy's eyes. It was like looking into the face of a nascent god. Yes, sir. Very well, sir. How he replied formally wishing he had left his collar buttoned. I noticed that you were uncomfortable with my presence aboard this junker, and I was hoping we might discuss an arrangement. The adult words sounded strange coming from such a little voice. My parents are devout believers in the holy portal they wish to pass through. I, young as I am, do not wish to die. I want to inherit their vast fortune and live my life. Will you aid me? Why did they bring you? Howie asked, and realised the child was waiting for the honorific, so he stuttered out a late, Sir. It was my idea to herd them towards it, but it was beyond my comprehension that they would desire to never be parted from me in this manner. We live and learn, or at least I intend to. I can transfer you a million right now. The little boy brought out a sleek tablet and tapped at the dead screen, trying to wake it. Electricals don't work this close to the eye, sir. When you return me to dry land, then, yes? I could even take you into service if you wished it. Howie nodded. Lesser, Hicks had said. Lesser. I will need to hear you say it, the child pressed. Yes, sir. Of course, sir. An hour later, Howie was back next to the captain as the river opened up before them. As it did... Rusty changed the Elysium's angle, and at a blast of the whistle, increased the speed of her paddle wheel. The Everfolk crowded the front rail and gasped to see the eye. The enormous whirlpool sparkled with the refracted moonlight which had found the meteorite shards that lay beneath its centre. The water span dizzyingly fast around that central point of sucking depth, and the Elysium chugged out into the churning water and began to circle with the current, Nose pointed slightly away from the centre, and paddle wheel surging to keep them from being pulled in. The captain began the ceremony by sounding a gentle chime, signalling Howie to begin filling exquisite glasses from the ornate bowl. One by one, when they were ready, the Everfolk approached, and Howie handed each of them a glass of the flower-steeped draught they had helped prepare. He saw the child and his parents approach. They were amongst the last to be served. Howie handed each of the parents a glass before the child spoke. Is this one my flower? The boy pointed at one of the remaining glasses. No, sir. This one is yours. Howie reverentially passed over the glass 
then smiled and nodded as he looked into the unfathomable eyes of the Everfolk child. The family, parents beaming beatifically, left together to stand by the railing. Deal's off, Howie muttered to the captain, who smirked knowingly and sounded the chime again. Each Everfolk drained their glass, and within a moment they slithered to the floor as the poison undid their wealth-infused genetics and stopped their hearts. Howie watched the child drink his, watched him drop with a smug smile still on his face, and when the time came, Howie was the one to tip him over the side. He watched the boy get snatched by the current, along with the rest of his kind. Their belongings followed, after the crew had rifled through them for anything they could get away with stealing. All of it was eventually pulled inexorably towards the frothing centre of the eye of the jungle. Another blast of Rusty's steam whistle broke the pall of silence, and by the time Howie looked back at the water, the bodies and belongings had all been dragged out of sight. They made good time on the return leg. The Elysium pushed through the night down river, and before the next dusk could arrive, the home dock swung into view. Howie ran the crew ragged as they put the Elysium to sleep for the weekend, before eventually releasing them to the night, once he was satisfied she was prepared for the journeys they would make next week. The captain was already long gone by the time the work was done, so Howie signed the crew off the boat by the gangway and handed them their pay packets for shore leave. Rusty was the last to disembark, pocketing his thick envelope. Howie quickly extinguished the oil lantern he'd been working the ledger by and trotted after him. Rusty! he called out, causing the man to turn. Howie jabbed the old wanner with his right fist, seized him by the scruff of the neck, and then gave him two more good thumps on the side of his leathery face. The last one split his bushy eyebrow open. Howie dragged him close and spat words into his ear. Even think about tossing me overboard like that again, and you'll feel my fucking knife, old-timer. We got an accord. Aye, sir, mumbled the old pilot through his rapidly swelling face. Howie let him drop to the dock and stalked past him. Jungle rum and grass awaited him with the other river rats, as it would for the rest of his life. Well... I must say, my, my first note is I was thrilled to have the traitorous dog Rusty back. He, he uh, featured he featured prominently in your feedback, so I I wanted to include him. <laughs> Rusty, the uh, love loads and loads of lovely little turns of phrase in there, my man. I uh, the one that really caught me off guard was describing the flowers as pendulous. Because because <laughs> yeah. of the um, the connotation we have for that in in literature, which is mostly from, uh, I think it's one of Germans with pendulous breasts, isn't it? Yeah, it's bosoms and stuff, isn't it? Yeah, just bosoms. Yeah, it's but it it gives this real like fertility in nature sense. There's a uh, there's a lot of that kind of life and death, birth and endings stuff working through this. Obviously, especially with like a a child with an adult's mind can sleep down a waterfall or a waterfall. <laughs> but the uh, there was a great line uh, he said about the possibility in, in his eyes mm. which is it's such a nice word like instead of potential you know normally you say look at a child you can see their potential but to see the possibility is like to 
it, it, it really showed like how narrow the worldview was until he looked in those kids' eyes. And it was like all these things he hadn't even considered were just sat in this kid's creepy little gaze. Yeah. Yes, so when, strange little child. Bit of a world law question. So do they? did he look like a kid, but he was a lot older than that because they age much slower? Or was he actually just a very sharp? Um, for me, he's just a very, very sharp kid. I think they probably do develop a bit quicker just because of this, um, you know, these uh, these sort of special genetics and schools that they go to. They're, they're essentially all mega rich and on like a on a genetic level that they've helped themselves. Um, so I think he's very advanced for his age and he's clearly a little psycho. Yeah. The uh, dying with the smirk still on his face thing was like, oh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Kills you that quick. And then again, the... Uh, like, going right to the end of my boy Rusty. But him, you know, get taking a couple of punches and then they all just... He consigns himself to the life that in your first half it had been, you know, oh, this was... He, he knew he was close to, to being at that point. And yes. this was like this was his last opportunity to to not do that, and he's he's taken it. It was quite like almost mournful in a way. I think it is sad, I, but maybe it's also happy as well. It's um... I think it's it's like he's comforting that he he's like this is my lot, and I'm I'm okay with that. I can live with it. But he had to extinguish that bit of hope yeah. in the world, like that belief in the world. That, that, that there is some good in the way that things are set up. And he had to extinguish that to be able to just fully give himself to the, the river rat life. I think they, like it's you really start pulling the story apart. And it's great that the kid was a psycho because if he'd been an like, innocent blue-eyed child, it, it could have changed the whole way the story went. But Yeah. I, I think for certain, how he would just be 10k in debt. I think that that's that. Yeah. Like, you know, I think he would have he would have gone through with it. I think he would have because he, he's not motivated by money. Um, yeah. Which and it, I, I think you sort of see the two worldviews just crash into each other in that moment where, for this kid, he's just like, "What's an obscene amount of money I can offer this guy to save my life?" Yeah, and it's actually that that breaks the back, you know, because he says, "Oh, if you want, you can come and work for me." Like he fully doesn't understand that wanners just do this; they they live their one life. Their life, yeah. yeah. Uh, mm. Far too deep. Far too deep, Ben. <laughs> um, but I, you know, I I I really felt like I responded to some of the stuff that you mentioned in your in the feedback in the previous episode. Stuff like uh, going into the class divide measured by lifespan. Yeah. Um, what wanners do? They do forever. Uh, definitely more rusty and the, the sort of the bastards of the rest of the crew. I quite like that petty little bit of revenge that he gets where he just like works them ragged right at the end of their shift. Yeah, it's just like... Cause it's it's such a dick thing to do to people, isn't it? Like, it's sort of like, oh, like, come on, we can do this on Monday. And yeah. <laughs> he, he Only he can sign them off and he's like, my deck doesn't look scrubbed to me. Exactly, yeah. Best get the buckets out. Um, But I think, you know, there, there's also like even though he's really clear in the decisions that he's made, someone was getting a battering because the sort of like 
the code of honor amongst the, this crew was was breached by these guys yeah. and and he obviously sees it as rusty being the one that's done him in because he's dobbed him to the captain on on the rusty thing right uh-huh it, there's so much gravitas to the ceremony right like they're poisoned and, <laughs> yeah. and they, they rob him but just imagine there's like this like as the elves are sailing into the west if just one dude was yanking on a steam whistle <laughs> Like Galadriel goes over the the horizon into <laughs> into the ever, and it's like, <laughs> it's just really. I, I was really that whole sequence failed. It's like they threw their belongings over, you know, after they'd robbed them. Yeah, yeah. It was a lovely moment of like, yeah, it's it's all yes sir, no sir, reverence. Once they're dead, they're dead. What they got? Yeah, and I'm I'm not you know these are people that that live by the means of what they have. You know, I'm not chucking it in a river. I might need it. Yeah, and I think that there's a line where they, it's sort of what what can they get away with stealing? So, like, yeah. they aren't stealing diamond earrings because they can't get away yeah. with doing that. Fine um, clothes and... Yeah. But you might nick a decent pair of boots just so it's a bit more... Something like that, yeah. 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 Um, but, uh, yeah, it's it, it's... That that distinction between the way that the the river rats and the uh, the steamboat operators live their life and the the these ethereal ever folk, who are quite scary. Like there's this line about the nascent god of in this fucking nine year old child or however old he is, and that's not like gods are capricious in in all kinds of mythologies. Yeah, um, and this is I don't know. There's something weird about billionaires in our in our in our world, you know, as of right now, uh, and you hear it when people meet billionaires, they're like, there's just something about them. They're not, they're not connected to the world anymore. And this is essentially like a, a whole subsect of humanity that through money and chance likely to do this meteorite and stuff, have managed mm. to elevate themselves beyond normal humanity into immortality. And they're just weird billionaires that control everything. Oh man. Yeah. <laughs> I may have been thinking about the uh, the elections in England a little bit whilst I was <laughs> writing this. Just imagining myself like choking Jacob Rees-Mogg out. <clears throat> anyway, my politics aside, um, I uh, <laughs> can we can we aside that? I don't know. Might even uh, have to bleep it. I don't know. <laughs> call for his wetness to come and batter me. Um. <laughs> Give me your pendulous flowers. <laughs> oh, let me suckle at your pendulous flowers. <laughs> Nursey. Oh. oh, dear, these fucking... People run our country, Nick. Um, he doesn't run anything. He's a Victorian Goosebumps character. <laughs> <laughs> um, I really enjoyed this process of writing the story in two parts, getting the feedback in the middle, and using it to shape the way I went forwards. Um, yeah. The other thing that I did was that I applied um, Dan Harmon's story circle to this overall, overall narrative. Um, okay. Which is an eight-part narrative structure that he uses to break screenplay episodes, screenplays for episodes. Oh, that's um, cool. And, uh, yeah, I sort of, like, uh, read about it and... Uh, put it together and stuff. It was quite interesting because I'm I'm not a uh, a plotter. I'm, I'm I'm very firmly a pantser. Yeah. Um, 
and I, I feel like I've got a fairly sort of like uh, naturalistic way of tell of weaving stories. Like the actual creation is quite natural and organic. Um, so this was quite interesting because because it was already a little bit stilted because we'd done the first half. Yeah. It it was sort of felt like a good opportunity to do it, and I've and I've been meaning to do it for a while. Um, I think without without giving anything away about what I did, I think there was no option but a little bit of like accidental plotting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because you've had the first half there. So like every so often I've been like, oh, that'd be interesting. And the ideas start slotting into place kind of early, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think Very much so. we've been forcibly de-pantsed, Ben. We've been, we've been de-kegged, they call it in UK secondary schools, don't they? De-kegged. Showed everyone my knob, sir. <laughs> Right, well, that's quite enough about uh, me and my approach and my stories. I'm I'm very eager to hear the second part of your your cyberpunk uh, anti-religious sentiment story. Your faith punk. Your faith punk, yeah. <laughs> Top notch. When you're ready. Where were we? Knight grinned. This was a song he definitely knew all the parts to. He resisted the urge to throw his gun away and fight the seraphim with his hands. He wanted to feel its blood pulse around his probing fingers. He wanted to hang it with its own guts. See what it looked like on its perfect insides. Night! The rookie called out, her brain finally catching up with the situation. Not enough implants. Not enough uppers. They were living in a world too slow for the fight that would be near done before they even registered it had started. As it closed, Knight spun the chamber on his sidearm. Three clicks. That was what he needed. Chamber one was empty now. The saint's ash round depleted. Four would be enough to give him a chance, while the rookie took the academy's tear out of her mouth. The clicks seemed to come lifetimes apart as the gap was closed. The Seraph's eyes shone golden as they locked onto the bloodshot orbs in Knight's skull. They strained as though to reach out and steal the angel's own gaze. It had them working in concert with every other fibre of his body. His muscles pulled against his bones. Some of them would already be separating. The dose had been truly massive. It had needed to be. The third click came just as contact happened. Knight dropped to one knee with a shuddering impact as the great flaming sword swept through the space his head had been in. His left hand shot out like a bolt of vengeful lightning, gripping the enemy by its slender ankle. His right brought the gun up and let loose the chambered round. The gun bellowed, but the sound was no mere crash of explosive force. Instead, it called with Knight's own booming voice. All of his malice and conviction poured into it. Thou shalt not kill! The round itself was so simple. A casing of pure silver was the most expensive part. Their synthesized silver was no different from the ore of times past, and it added insult to the injury. Inside, bound tightly, was a strip of flesh from Knight's body. Even as he fired it, he felt the wound again, as though it were opened anew. It soon would be, 
if he survived the fight. The flesh was carved in tiny, intricate script, an ancient dead language called Hebrew. It spelt out ten simple rules that these assholes had set some time in the distant past. This idiot had broken one of them, smashing a sign through at least a dozen bystanders definitely counted as a sin, and that meant night had him. There was no spurt of blood or great wrenching of the body as pain racked it. Instead, chains of light sprung from the impact wound and bound the angel tightly. Not tight enough to kill, that would be far too ironic, but tight enough to buy ample time to deal with it. At least, sometimes. Night sprung up, uncoiling like a deadly viper. As he came, that voice, so pure and yet so sickening, seemed to pulse through him again. You would turn my words against me, sinner, but you are not worthy to cast any stone. Your whole being is sin, animal. I will render you incapable of speech and of sight. I will take from you the very essence of what gives you form and leave your memories to drift eternal in the pit of my fallen brother Lucifer. I am Mikael. I am war. I am your end. Night collided hard with the thing's midriff. The chains clanked against his shoulder and began to scorch as he made contact. Time. He didn't have much time. With a great lurch, both of them toppled groundwards. Knight's weight pressed the ethereal form into the ground painfully. He roared again. A mix of expletives in a dozen language flew out of him, laced with blood and traces of spent chem. It dripped onto the perfect naked chest of Mikael, leaving strange pink splotches in the air above him. They couldn't get dirty. On the outside. Knight brought a hand up and grabbed desperately at the angel's face. One finger found what would be an eye and pressed hard, eliciting a scream from the creature. His gloves, woven through as they were with threads of ancient papal robes, had done their job. He could breach the thing. He pushed as hard as his quickly deconstructing muscles would allow and felt something give. He dragged his other arm out from under his foe and lifted it in an effort to drag himself closer and put the clutched pistol under its chin. The sensation was white hot. Not pain, but something beyond it. It was what the overdose was to a chem addict. A moment beyond a normal sensation, into something you knew there was no return from. Mikael had managed to partially free its arm, and deftly swept its blade through Knight's moving right forearm. It did not bleed, but he felt snakes of blue fire writhe through his veins. The sword pulsed in his vision as Black Spot swam to join it, consciousness abandoning him. He threw his head back and vomited heartily. It caught in the awkward angle of his throat and he felt death begin to tighten his coils. He tossed his head around to try and loose the discharged contents of his stomach and saw the rookie dumbly lifting his entire forearm and the weapon it held. He ached to choke forth words, but his body was betraying him. He felt the voice of Mikael reverberating him once more. There, there, child. 
Here, let me take you to meet him, that you may have peace in your final moments. Mikhail reached and touched his sword hand to Knight's face. It was as if every drug he had ever taken was poured into him in its purest form. He gazed upon the incomprehensible in that moment. It was purest white light, and yet it did not burn his eyes. Throatless voices called wordless songs, softly and eternally. There was nothing he could recognise here, including the sensation of peace. Mikael stood before him, a soft smile playing on his face. He looked deep into Knight's eyes and wore nothing but a look of concerned love. An older brother, perhaps, only doing what was best by an erstwhile infant. Knight leant in and clamped his teeth around the bastard's nose. He bit as hard as he could, grinding his jaws back and forth as though to separate the breathing apparatus from his deadly foe's face. Unbidden, the angel elicited another scream, and reality snapped back in. It brought with it all the agony of Knight's existence, the come-down racking him near as hard as the flames that ate him from within. He spat the wad of flesh he'd severed from the perfect face and roared his last defiance at the rookie. Chamber six! Ada spun the chambers on her partner's gun. She cursed her inexperience as she was forced to check the markings to line up the correct shot. It seemed to take an age before she could level the weapon and, point blank, release the round into Mikhail's head. She didn't know what sort of ammunition her near-dead partner had been using, but she knew she'd have as much luck with her own gun if she tried to seduce the thing. She was surprised when no sound emanated from the weapon. Instead, a ring of black energy, almost like light in reverse, circled its head. Night began to laugh, the keening, mad laugh of one on the precipice of death. His eyes, Ada saw, turned black, and then he burst into flames, all that same colour. That round was affectionately known to the older officers as the do-or-die round. Of course, it would be more accurately described as die, then do. It paid, they'd reckoned, to play both sides. The big boys, so their contact had told them, could only be dragged to hell by a demon of high power or one of their most wrathful, sin-filled servants. The contract had been snapped up as soon as Knight's gun had offered it, witnessed, as they all must be, by an angel. With a roar and a wave of black flames, both Mikael and the stricken warrior cop disappeared. Ada slumped to the ground and let the junky lunatic's gun fall, clattering the final beats of his city song as it went. Operations, she said softly. I think we got him. What a conclusion. I love that. That was really fun. I'm glad, man. And uh, and like really well sort of constructed in it because the world feels quite intricate here. Um, yeah, I really enjoyed the way that you leaned into him being the junkie lunatic. I thought that was that you changed gears right at the start with that. Not enough implants, not enough uppers kind of line. Yeah. 
which gives you a huge speed boost then. And later on, you're talking about like um, uh, like this sort of spraying out spent chem. And just the, the drugs in the story and the, the stimulants and everything like that, they are so well realized. Like the bit w the, with the overdose, when you describe it as be, uh, being beyond a normal sensation, that felt very real. Um, yeah, I just, I really enjoyed the world. I really enjoyed the way that you built it. Um, it the, the start, when you were talking about like uh, rotating the chambers and like, you know, the way that you were lovingly describing him, like squeezing the trigger and stuff. It reminded me of uh, the Dark Tower, you know, the Gunslinger, Stephen King. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, like there was like a like a sort of sanctity to using a weapon like this, but then that is kind of perverted by him being a, a junkie lunatic, as you put it. Um, really enjoyed that. Um, the feeling the wound again for the the own flesh, which has the Ten Commandments on it. Yeah. In the round, that's a really cool thing. Where, where did you get the idea for that? Um, so I I started googling things about like in, in various areas how how can you defeat an angel? Like how do you capture an angel? Was when I looked up how can you kill an angel? And in capturing an angel, it's, it was talking about how you had to you had to be able to prove they'd committed a sin. And I thought, what if you had to actually like using something built in god's image so man mm -hmm. you had to like put the onus of that sin on them and it just gave me this idea of being like what if you had to spend a bit of yourself and like the weapon called the sin like the piece of flesh in the bullet was announcing which sin had been caused as it struck and i just I thought that's it was really, really cool. like i i said faith pump jokingly at the beginning but Mm, I think it's yeah. got a lot of potential as a as a concept. Like, I'd love to spread this out into other religions and <laughs> like talk about where things cross over and like, oh no, this thing is definitely true, and it means you can do this, this, and this. It's not just the Christian stuff that works. You know, yeah, really I mean, fun. the you know, it being written in the dead language of Hebrew was quite interesting. Um, the uh, just generally, like, I like this faith punk thing. I think it's. It's really interesting. I also got a bit of like a Constantine vibe from it, like um, they're like yeah, using rules, using their own rules to capture demons and stuff, and capture, in this case, um, to defeat angels. Um, so you were evoking like Stephen King, now Neil Gaiman, you know, like and and like a load of really interesting characters whilst doing your own thing, and it felt pretty original. It was it was exceedingly hyper violent. Like um, I could imagine yeah. this being an like an exceptional fast-paced like anime or something like that um oh, yeah. i'd love that <laughs> yeah it'd be great wouldn't it um especially with the sort of like thou shall not kill scream as well um it's yeah the 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 bit where you're like uh they you know they these simple rules that these assholes made up or something it was i really enjoyed that um throatless voices was something else that i wrote down that kind of description is so succinct but really gets it, really yeah. evokes it very, very quickly. Um, my only two notes were that um, I I found the description of when you started when he started biting the nose off, when you yeah. called it a breathing apparatus, that took me out of it a little bit because that summoned an image of like scuba gear. See, I I wondered if it would play well because the the idea was that the angel doesn't need a nose. Yes. So it's like just something it's wearing on its face that you breathe through. 
Mm. But yeah, I think that I would probably rework that. No, I, I do agree with you. I mean, you could even... Uh, it's, it's, there's potentially even a joke there about a pointless nose. Yeah. If you, buy, if you end up buying it off. Um, That's fine. And, and then <laughs> there was... Um, there was one... Uh, there was one bit that I that I didn't I I didn't get um, and uh, if maybe we could go into it, but when she Ooh. was talking about how um, she'd have as much luck with her own gun to seduce the thing, I wasn't so, that, that jumped me to the side a little bit. I wasn't sure what was. So he's using. It's I I this is part of so you know I said about going back and rewriting stuff. Yeah. He's very much gone rogue in terms of how much he's taken out. So, you know, he's firing off these these rounds that they are a tiny amount of each one. And he's just filled his gun, like in each chamber, one of each of these super rare things. And she's got the gun they give you when you turn up to work as a cop. Got you. Got you. So she's like... I could shoot with my revolver, or I could just see what this thing does that he's using. Yeah, I can. I can sort of see what you're going for there. I think um, for me that line doesn't work. I, maybe, okay. maybe I'd have to like read it, like maybe written down, or um, maybe even listen to it again. But um, it might be worth, you know, you know, when you're doing a doing your edit pass and all the rest of it, and there's yeah. just a line that you thought was really good, and then it just sticks out, and you're like, why isn't this working? Um, it felt like one of those lines to me in my writing because that happens all the time. Yeah, um, this may be like third pass. Oh shit! What was I thinking? Type <laughs> stuff, yeah. Well, or potentially maybe you've completely nailed it, and I, I'm the short-sighted one. So maybe just I'm, I'm pointing it out just so you might might have another look at it. But overall, I thought it was phenomenal. Like as I was saying earlier, like the the the, the other kinds of stories that you're evoking whilst doing something original, whilst also telling this incredibly fast-paced, very very violent story. Um, it rose me in all the right ways, so I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, it's definitely been uh, one of the ones where I've thought I could definitely go away and write something else in this setting. Yes. It would be nice to sort of stretch it, like see what happens when you pull it and the, the inside starts showing. <laughs> Carry on with the rookie cop now that she's had the uh, shine knocked off her. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> the show where you know you have a looking at they no one will show her how to do the terrible things that knight did so she's having to dick out like old Brady <laughs> cctv footage of him doing things and <laughs> like reading through his diaries to look at these ancient religious things he's found it's like, it's or it's insane or he comes back as a demon to to, to like try and corrupt her to do oh, those things she, she warlock he tries to warlock her yeah <laughs> i could dig that <laughs> I think you're onto something because it's clearly it's clearly seized me and it's it's definitely seized you. So it's great work. I think it's fantastic. I'm also I interested. In... I wrote this for you. Yeah, <laughs> I wrote this for you. I uh, I'm also interested to see the changes that you made in the first part as well. Um, yeah. So I'll, I'll listen to those as well. But overall, I think um, these are these are a pair of quite exciting, um, roughly three thousand word short stories, which is double the length yeah. that we normally do for the podcast. So. I, I'm I'm pleased with what we've done here, and I and I, I really enjoyed the writing process of it as well, with the feedback in the middle. Yeah, I, th I think it was really a fun, but be really interesting. But you know, like I say, we we kind of didn't get to pants as much. Mm -hmm. We had uh, 
you got to go back and you got to take that feedback that instead of normally where it's like, okay, I'll think about the next time I'm writing. Yeah. And it might help to, it is directly helping me. What, what can I do to, to improve what I'm doing right now? And that's, that's really interesting. It's, it's kind of like having a weekly writing group rather than a podcast. It was interesting. Uh that's exactly where this idea came from, because we had um, several very talented, very hardworking authors in a row uh, come on and say that they owed a lot of their success to the quite rigorous writing groups they were in. Yeah. And it's like, you know, as you say, like you can take from feedback and try and apply it in stories going forwards. But we don't often see us go back and actually polish something that we've already performed and gotten feedback for so yeah. i've really enjoyed this process and i've um i'm sure we'll be doing this again at some point i reckon so i think uh next time we'll mix it up and we'll do the first half of the story to one prompt and the second half to a different prompt i think yeah yeah that, that's that ben threatened me with i, I, I did I, I agree with him <laughs> I, I did i did throw that curveball in but we decided to keep it a little bit simpler the first time didn't we um but uh, yeah, no, I'd be definitely down for that. And we'll see what people make of the longer stories. Yeah. Um, so you lovely people, we've thoroughly enjoyed writing and telling these stories to each other and to you. And uh, we hope you have an absolutely gorgeous time. And we'll see you in the next episode. See you all soon. Thanks for joining us for this episode of The Tiny Bookcase. Remember to subscribe, otherwise you're going to miss out on the future fun. Also, tell a friend. If you like this episode, link them to it. We'd be tremendously grateful. You can follow us on Twitter at Bookcase Tiny, Facebook at The Tiny Bookcase, and Instagram at Bookcase Tiny for updates. Speaking of supporting the podcast, well, magic can only take one so far. The Tiny Bookcase is supported by the generosity of its patrons. Those kind souls have really kept my belly full the last year. Let's cast a spell for them, shall we? For a Magnificent Beardery, let's cast the Chinicus Folliculale spell on Gary Laird. For rich ginger tones on their scalp, let us cast the Orangi Hedondo spell for Scott Byrne. And for general fabulousness, why not the Ulala la Mother spell on Matthew McLaren? How do you come up with that shit, man?